You are listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of First Contact Reflections, an original story by Ryan Johnson. Performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson. If you enjoy this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. If you haven't already, please listen to our previous performance, First Contact, by Murray Leinster, the inspiration for this original story. Arid reclined at his terminal, legs resting on the smooth, poly-alloy desk. Its surface was polished to an eternal metallic shine. In his hand was a small cylinder of thatched carbon fiber, open on both ends. A simple toy he picked up for his daughter during his morning walk. She and her mother would be home soon. Recalling the time he spent puzzling over the same toy when he was his daughter's age made him grin. He considered how long he should leave her to struggle with it before showing her the trick. His thoughts were interrupted by an incoming hollow message, the sender's name materializing from the flush emitter on his terminal. Arid touched a lit symbol pulsing just beneath the seamless surface, accepting the connection. Captain Ceylon, it's been a while. How are you? Is Alara doing well? She will be, once I finally decide to retire. She doesn't worry as much as she used to, but you know her. She still thinks the job puts too much stress on me. Work is actually why I'm calling. I have a new assignment I could use your help on. Arid responded with a teasing rebuke. All business as usual, Captain? I know. I'm sorry. You know it's a bad habit of mine. This one has me more excited than usual. This mission will be very... Different from our previous ones. A serious edge creeping into her voice. But we're still in the planning stage. What's been keeping you busy lately? Based on your tone, nothing as interesting as this assignment sounds. I just finished teaching a class at the local university. Experimentation methodology and pan-species psychology. It sounds fancier than it is. Mostly full of kids who thought the title would look cool on their transcript. I've also done some work for the local law enforcement. A few interstellar corporations, mostly psychological profiling. It helps pass the time. But you know I prefer higher stakes. That always seemed to be where you shine the most. Makes it easier on my conscience to pull you in. The Council has decided to engage a new species. The problem is... They're a borderline Nex civilization. Arid raised an eyebrow and said thoughtfully, I see. It's been about 300 years since we last engaged a similar species. If I remember my history, it was the Razo. They're a valuable member of the Trust now, but there was an adjustment period. There's no question about that. But considering there's been a slowdown in the discovery of intelligent life over the last thousand years, I think it's worth it. It's why I've started working on a special protocol that should help us better mitigate that kind of risk. It's radical, but I was able to convince the Council. With my plan, and your talents, I think we can handle this encounter with a mostly positive outcome. 
Your work with the Zadians and the Picosans was instrumental in bringing them into the Trust. They may not have been as borderline as the Razo, but they were difficult inductions. Depending how this goes, we may even get authorization to give species we've avoided in the past a second look. You certainly have me intrigued, Captain. Arid replied, interest genuine. Come by my office tomorrow, and we'll discuss the details. Excited, Arid spent the rest of the evening going over the records of his previous first contact missions. When directly involved, he preferred dealing with species that were cooperative and interested in joining the galactic organization. But the part of him that enjoyed intellectual challenge found borderline Nex civilizations much more interesting. Nex was an acronym for negative externalizing. It was used to define civilizations whose cultural psychology automatically viewed interacting with other intelligent life as a threat rather than a potential boon. Pure Nex civilizations were avoided if possible. It was the borderline ones that were still occasionally engaged. Trust psychologists and sociologists believed it was based on how each civilization approached two fundamental rules of planetary life. First, that survival was paramount. This was inarguable. Even the most altruistic species had to place their own survival first if their existence was challenged. Second, was that resources, even on a galactic level, were ultimately finite. The second belief was more interpretable. Based on the fundamental law of energy conservation, there was an unavoidable truth to this. But with advanced technology and science, a civilization could essentially free themselves of resource constraints. Regardless, there were still some species with advanced technology who still saw all other life as a potential threat based on those axioms. Pure next civilizations were rare. The vast majority were in some degree of transition. The issue lay in their contradictory nature. They typically espoused a respect for life and had reached a level of enlightenment, but their societies still displayed violent, often xenophobic behavior. The use of the label negative externalizing was based on the belief that this contradiction was these societies projecting their morality onto alien life and was a byproduct of civilizations who still had inequality within their own societies or recent past. Early next morning, Arid took a high-speed conveyor to the governmental district, his wrist-mounted AI telling him exactly when to begin traversing the deceleration belts. Arid arrived on time in front of the GTO, Galactic Trust Operations Building. His proximity triggered Arid's AI assistant to notify the captain of his impending arrival. The lobby was as busy as the local spaceport, and just as diverse. It housed the embassies of all 186 Trust members, consisting of about 213 species, depending on how you classified subspecies and genetic modification. The GTO building symbolized the spirit and values of the Galactic Trust. The lobby was large and open, his gaze following the 50 mezzanine levels and fast movement of the glass front grav lifts made Arid momentarily dizzy. Throughout the lobby were numerous art displays from the various GT members. In the middle of the lobby, behind a large crescent-shaped desk, 
was the GTO building's unremitting receptionist. Arid walked up to the AI assistant and introduced himself. In an attempt to be as inclusive as possible, the assistant was a nondescript, bipedal humanoid, with translucent skin of glowing gold hue. Being a hologram, the assistant could change shape on command to better welcome the member species with more unconventional physiology. Upon informing the assistant of his scheduled meeting, directions to Captain Seelon's office immediately downloaded to his personal AI. The bio-lens that he and every citizen who chose to wear overlaid the path to Captain Seelon's office in his vision. During his trek, Arid made eye contact with the friendly faces of at least ten different species. He knew none of them personally, but they still acknowledged him. Arid stepped onto the grav lift, and the destination floor was automatically transmitted to its CPU. Even though the building was much longer than it was tall, there were multiple entire levels dedicated to interspecies art projects, terraforming operations, cultural knowledge exchange programs, deep space exploration, humanitarian relief, and numerous other trust-wide social projects. Even though he had traveled hundreds of feet, the lift arrived within seconds, and Arid felt no change in momentum. Walking down the hall to the captain's office, Arid was eternally grateful that the military branch of the GT only required a few medium-sized rooms. In the trust, a large military simply wasn't needed. Each member species maintained a planetary defense force, but the nature and size of the trust negated any need for a large unified fleet. All members were of like mind and dedication to the defense and well-being of the others. In 10,000 years, they were yet to encounter a hostile species with the resources or desire to engage the Galactic Trust. Violence was an unavoidable part of all species' past. Trust sociologists believe it was simply a necessary stage in the development of intelligent life when constrained with limited resources. But time and again, it was proven that as a culture's technology improved, the necessity and desire for violent conflict decreased almost proportionally, and the trust had developed to a point where the military branch was almost unneeded. In recent times, it mostly handled covert tactical operations and requests from members to assist in certain interspecies conflicts. Regardless, it was a tradition that first contact situations were a joint operation of the diplomatic and military branches. The diplomatic branch made the decisions, and the military executed along their guidelines at their own discretion. Considering the way first contact was handled now, Arid had wondered if the military's inclusion was really necessary at all. With access to the most cutting-edge technology in the Trust, initial contact with the new species had progressed to where it was almost done all remotely. Civilizations that had shown a certain level of enlightenment were greeted with a standard ambassadorial delegation quickly. Others were handled indirectly until enough trust was developed on both sides. The door to Captain Ceylon's office slid open horizontally, seams appearing, then collapsing to one side. Captain Ceylon was very Spartan, and her office exemplified that personality trait. It was one of the many things Arid respected about her. 
potted metallic trees sat in all four corners of the room, their medium consisting of oval-shaped diamonds of varying colors. Her assistant sat behind a desk, similar to the one in the lobby, but smaller. Behind her was an image of the Galactic Trust logo, appearing to ripple in a gentle breeze. Hi, I've a nine o'clock meeting with Captain Seelaw, Arid said politely to the synth secretary. She wasn't an AI, but a synthetic life form, one of the AI mainframe of Elios II's children. Go on in, Arid. She's been waiting for you, she said with a smile, displaying perfectly symmetric Carbitanian teeth. Arid returned the smile and thanked her before entering the captain's office. A broad smile on her face, Captain Ceylon stood up from behind her desk. As Arid walked forward, they initially clasped forearms, then moved in for a friendly embrace. It's good to see you in the flesh. Take a seat. I won't keep you long. I'll explain the crux of our plan and give you some homework. That's how I like it. So, Captain, can you start off by telling me a little bit about the species? Of course. They call themselves humans, from a planet called Earth. It's pretty remote, located in one of the galaxy's spiral arms. Erid crossed one leg and reclined in his chair, steepling his fingers to his bottom lip. His eyes were just as focused on Captain Ceylon's face as his ears were on her words. From what we've been able to gather, they haven't encountered any other intelligent species, even though they've had FTL capability for a few thousand years. I imagine that would have been different if they were closer to the galactic center, like most of us. Hmm. Culturally, at least, they're probably still very xenophobic. Arid replied thoughtfully. Anatomically, they're very similar to us Theosians, slight internal and chemical differences aside. We both have ten fingers and toes, two eyes and ears, similar reproductive organs, but we have a greater range and variety of those characteristics, as well as height and pigmentation. This is all in the dossier. I'll send it to your secure store later. You are nowhere near boring me, Captain, Arid reassured, genuine interest in his tone. The captain smiled and continued, leaning forward in her chair. On one hand, they appear to be a very diverse species in opinion and desire, and at certain points in their history, they've progressed very quickly technologically. However, as expected of a borderline next civilization, that history also has numerous examples of extreme violence, conflict, and abuses of personal rights. Much of their progress over the millennia appears to have been driven by fear and personal gain, usually at the expense of some subgroup. Despite reaching a post-scarcity level of technology, there are still large portions of their population that live in a substandard existence. Arid's brow furrowed. Their military, terrestrially and space-based, is abnormally large for not having an extrasolar threat. They started spaceflight about 18,000 years ago, but only developed FTL around 3,000 years ago. Their weapons technology has greatly outpaced their transportation technology, but isn't a threat to us, 
yet. The furthest they've traveled is a few hundred light years from their planet. Priorities, Arid mumbled to himself. The captain acknowledged his comment with a forlorn nod. What the Council and I feel is the biggest issue is the humans' overwhelming paranoia when dealing with the unknown. From what we've analyzed, they approach interactions, even amongst themselves, with the same prejudice you would reserve for a known threat. That concerns us on how they would respond to an alien life form. Yet, we have many examples in their history and media of great altruistic actions taken by individuals. In their entertainment feeds, honor, intelligence, benevolence, loyalty are all portrayed as highly desirable characteristics, yet their actions through history contradict this sentiment. Arid felt it was an appropriate time to interject. I'll admit they don't seem to have the strongest record, but you know how I feel, Captain. All life should be given a chance. In our far ancient history, we committed atrocities too, against our own people. Even as the founders of the Trust, our first few interactions with other species were far from peaceful. You're absolutely right, and at least a majority of the Council feels the same way, but they also agree we haven't encountered a species quite like the humans. On one hand, they seem quite unpredictable as individuals, but the opposite as a whole. With the Zidians and Pecosans, at least their cultures were more homogenous. Arid chuckled to himself sardonically. That's a twist. Is their value individually greater than their sum? I think I get the picture, Captain. So what's this plan of yours to, I take it, test the humans? That's where you come in, Arid. Leaving the GTO building feeling conflicted, Arid admitted to himself Captain Seeland's plan was ingenious. It was the best course of action for the welfare of the Trust, but it felt underhanded. All the first contact situations Arid dealt with before were honest, open exchanges. However, he admitted to himself that during the more precarious missions, that candor may have made things more difficult. He certainly had a lot more research to do on the humans. Fortunately, the captain had provided him with an extremely thorough dossier. Its conclusions were reached by a consensus of several of the Trust's most powerful AIs and some of the GTO's greatest psychology and sociology experts. Walking into his home, Arid saw his wife and daughter on the couch. Celia, his daughter, was playing with a red ball, the simplest of the numerous toys she had. He smiled at her and gave them both kisses on the cheek, doing his best to hide the introspective look on his face. The Theosians were the founding members of the Trust for a reason. Most Theosians had what seemed like to other species a preternatural ability to understand emotion and analyze social interactions. Some Theosian couples were so in tune with each other they rarely carried on long conversations, gathering most emotional insight through body language and facial expressions. During initial contact, many species thought that Theosians telepathic, at least partially. It was said a Theosian learned just as much from what you intended to communicate 
as from what you didn't. Their emotional intelligence quotient was exceptionally high among trust member species, and Arid was gifted, even among his own people. Arid spent the next few weeks delving into human history and culture, devising multiple action plans and contingencies based on how he thought the humans may react. Eventually, reaching a point where he felt ready, Arid contacted the captain. I'm as prepared as I'm going to get, Captain. Whenever you're ready, I am. Arid said in a weary tone. We need another week to prep the probe. When it's ready, I'll have you come in and meet the team. I know I filled you in on the details of its capabilities, but I think it would still be a good idea for you to see what it can do in person. Arid grinned at the captain through the view screen. I do love new toys. Arid crossed the silica asphalt tarmac of the spaceport to the private military hangar on foot. There were 24 large public landing pads and many more smaller private ones. Intentionally, the hangar wasn't as large as most, wishing to keep a low profile. The control room was dominated by a circular raised platform and flanked on both sides by monitoring and maintenance machines. A dodecahedron levitated in the middle of the platform. It was roughly two feet in diameter and painted a matte black. Its uniform, dimpled surface was broken by a few seams. Arid's imagination worked to guess its internal components. The captain, standing to the right of it in front of one of the numerous terminals, was conversing with a technician in a short-sleeved lab jumpsuit. He waved and motioned Arid to come over. Arid made a circuit of the probe, admiring its elegant form, then joined the captain by his side. Captain Ceylon introduced the technician. This is Senior Engineer Vedic, Dr. Vedic. I'm sure I missed some details when I explained the probe's capabilities earlier, so I'll let him give you the full rundown. The captain leaned into Arid, talking low, but still intentionally loud enough for Vedic to hear. You know these science types. I think he wants to brag about it anyway. For a moment, Engineer Vedic looked to be all teeth. You know me too well, Captain. Mr. Arid, the science team has been aware of the plan for a while now, and think we've integrated any and all capabilities you would need to achieve your objective. Vedic walked over to the probe and rested his elbow on its surface. The probe didn't budge. It was like he was leaning against a boulder. She has a built-in FTL drive with anti-grav propulsion for sub-light maneuvering. She doesn't use fusion or antimatter for energy generation, only stored energy, but she's using a cutting-edge quantum capacitor with regenerative kinetic recharging. Basically, any energy used for sublight propulsion is recaptured at a 99% conversion rate. There's also a Higgs field manipulator that allows the probe to adjust its mass, improving propulsion efficiency even more. That's amazing, Dr. Vedic. Aird complimented, truly in awe. How come these technologies haven't made it into more of our spaceships? We're still working on it. Size is currently the limiting factor. 
We've only been able to make the combination of these technologies practical with a device of this size. It may take some years, but it's only a matter of time till we get it working with passenger-sized ships. This would work great for the pigmens. This isn't much smaller than one of their space liners. We have them to thank for a lot of these breakthroughs, Fedek admitted. They've been very gracious sharing their technology, and have even agreed to limit its use until we're able to make it work with larger ships. I didn't mean to interrupt, Doctor. Please continue. You're fine, Mr. Arid. Vedic took a breath and continued. The quantum capacitor isn't unlimited, but should provide you with plenty of energy for full utilization of all the probe's capabilities. The quantum capacitor is integrated into its chassis, so based on the size, it could last about 10,000 time particles on mission before recharging. It has a standard QEC, a quantum entanglement communicator, so you shouldn't notice any lag interacting with it. There's also a large-scale holographic projector that also provides cloaking ability. The image is emitted from the dimples in its surface, and should fool most sensors as long as direct physical contact isn't made. The coup de grace is a built-in energy-to-matter converter connected to an atomic extruder and assembler. Utilizing the power in the quantum capacitor, you could, theoretically, print a normal-sized ship using this probe. It would take weeks and couldn't produce the quantum-level electronics used in our ships, but it could produce the shell and build almost any item of moderate complexity. That's something like an industrial replicator miniaturized. Could we see it in action? Arid asked, excitement creeping into his voice. Certainly, Vedic exclaimed. It doesn't have the resolution of our industrial replicators, but it should be more than adequate for your needs. Please, back up a few feet. For safety, I need to raise a containment field around it to mimic the vacuum of space. Everyone present stepped back several feet, while Dr. Vedic walked over to the field regulator. He typed a command that raised a transparent energy shield, evacuated the air from it, and initiated the probe scan and printing function. A narrow beam of light passed over Arid from head to toe, a confused expression on his face. Then, one of the seams on the probe parted and extended an uncountable number of extremely thin tubes. The probe dropped to the ground, then moved upward. And for the next ten seconds, the nozzles were a blur. When complete, there was a six-foot-tall carbon statue of Arid directly beneath the probe, perfectly capturing his perplexed expression. Just as quickly, the field was refilled with atmosphere and deactivated. Arid walked around the statue, looking at it in astonishment. He slowly pushed on it and was surprised it didn't budge. This thing is solid? And it built it that fast? Arid asked, incredulous through a childlike grin. How large an object can it produce? Vedic had quite the smug expression on his face. It depends on the length of the nozzles and how many passes. In this probe, they can extend up to 15 feet. We could make them longer, but we thought this would be sufficient. 
I think it'll do just fine, Doctor. Errett assured as he slowly walked around the statue, admiring its realism. It even captured the nick on his arm from the family syndicate's claws. We've already programmed it with the communications relay and ship design you told us you'd like to mimic when on mission. That pretty much covers it. Do you have any questions, Mr. Arid? No, no, Arid said absently, still admiring the statue. I think we're ready to begin. Good, said Captain Ceylon. We have the human's projected flight path already analyzed. We'll launch the probe tonight. It should reach them within 65 time particles. Go home and relax. We'll contact you once it's close to rendezvous. After that, it'll be a slog. You'll have to stay in the control center until the mission has been concluded. I'm ready, Captain. My family's aware. Let's go make some new friends. This concludes the Auditory Entertainment's production of First Contact Reflections, Part 1 of 2, an original story by Ryan Johnson, performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson. If you enjoy this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. If you haven't already, please listen to our previous performance, First Contact, by Murray Leinster, the inspiration for this original story. Thank you for listening.